Chapter Nine of the Ordeal of Mark Twain by Van Wyck Brooks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by John Greenman. Chapter Nine, Mark Twain's Humor. To be good is noble, but to show others how to be good is nobler and less trouble. Pudd'nhead Wilson's New Calendar. And now we are ready for Mark Twain's humor. We recall how reluctant Mark Twain was to adopt the humorist's career, and how, all his life, he was in revolt against a role which, as he vaguely felt, had been thrust upon him, that he considered it necessary to publish his Joan of Arc anonymously is only one of many proofs of a lifelong sense that Mark Twain was an unworthy double of Samuel Langhorne Clemens. His humorous writing he regarded as something external to himself, as something other than artistic self-expression, and it was in consequence of pursuing it, we have divined, that he was arrested in his moral and aesthetic development. We have seen, on the other hand, that he adopted this career because his humor was the only writing he did in Nevada that found an appreciative audience, and that the immediate result of his decision was that he obtained from the American public the prodigious and permanent approval which his own craving for success and prestige had driven him to seek. Here, then, are the facts our discussion of Mark Twain's humor will have to explain. We must see what that humor was, and what produced it, and why, in following it, he violated his own nature, and at the same time achieved such ample material rewards. It was in Nevada and California that Mark Twain's humor, of which we have evidence during the whole of his adolescence, came to the front. And it is a notable fact that almost every man of a literary tendency who was brought into contact with those pioneer conditions became a humorist. The funny man was one of the outstanding pioneer types. He was, indeed, virtually the sole representative of the Republic of Letters in the Old West. Artemus Ward, Orpheus C. Kerr, Petroleum V. Nasby, Dan De Quill, Captain Jack Downing, even Bret Hart sufficiently remind us of this fact. Plainly, pioneer life had a sort of chemical effect on the creative mind, instantly giving it a humorous cast. Plainly, also, the humorist was a type that pioneer society required in order to maintain its psychic equilibrium. Mr. Paine seems to have divined this in his description of Western humor. It is a distinct product, he says. It grew out of a distinct condition, the battle with the frontier. The fight was so desperate, to take it seriously was to surrender. Women laughed that they might not weep, men when they could no longer swear. Western humor was the result. It is the freshest, wildest humor in the world, but there is tragedy behind it. Perhaps we can best surprise the secret of this humor by noting Mark Twain's instinctive reaction to the life in Nevada. It is evident that in many ways, and in spite of his high spirits and high hopes, he found that life profoundly repugnant to him. He constantly confesses in his diary and letters, indeed, to the misery it involves. I do hate to go back to the Washoe he writes after a few weeks of respite from mining. We fag ourselves completely out every day. 
He describes Nevada as a place where the devil would feel homesick. I heard a gentleman say the other day that it was the damnedest country under the sun, and that comprehensive conception I fully subscribe to. It never rains here, and the dew never falls. No flowers grow here, and no green thing gladdens the eye. Our city lies in the midst of a desert of the purest, most unadulterated and uncompromising sand. And as with the setting, so with the life. High-strung and neurotic, says Mr. Paine, the strain of newspaper work and the tumult of the Comstock had told on him. More than once he found it necessary, this young man of twenty-eight, to drop all work and rest for a time at Steamboat Springs, a place near Virginia City, where there were boiling springs and steaming fissures in the mountainside and a comfortable hotel. That he found the pace in California just as difficult, we have his own testimony. With what fervor he speaks of the damn San Francisco style of wearing out life, the careworn or eager anxious faces that made his brief escape to the Sandwich Islands, God, what a contrast with California and the Washoe, ever sweet and blessed in his memory. Never, in short, was a man more rasped by any social situation than was this young barbarian, as people have called him, by what people also call the free life of the West. We can see this in his profanity, which also, like his humor, came to the front in Nevada and remained one of his prominent characteristics through life. We remember how mad he was, clear through, over the famous highway robbery episode. He was always half-seriously threatening to kill people. He threatened to kill his best friend Jim Gillis. To hear him denounce a thing, says Mr. Paine, was to give one the fierce, searching delight of galvanic waves. Naturally, therefore, no one in Virginia, according to one of the Gillis brothers, could resist the temptation of making Sam swear. Naturally. But from all this we observe that Mark Twain was living in a state of chronic nervous exasperation. Was this not due to the extraordinary number of repressions the life of pioneering involved? It is true that it was, in one sense, a free life. It was an irresponsible life. It implied a break with civilization, with domestic, religious, and political ties. Nothing could be freer in that sense than the society of the gold-seekers in Nevada and California, as we find it pictured in Roughing It. Free as that society was, nevertheless, scarcely any normal instinct could have been expressed or satisfied in it. The pioneers were not primitive men, they were civilized men, often of gentle birth and education, men for whom civilization had implied many restraints, of course, but innumerable avenues also of social and personal expression and activity to which their natures were accustomed. In escaping responsibility, therefore, they had only placed themselves in a position where their instincts were blocked on every side. 
There were so few women among them, for instance, that their sexual lives were either starved or debased, and children were as rare as the luck of Roaring Camp, a story that shows how hysterical, in consequence of these and similar conditions, the mining population was. Those who were accustomed to the exercise of complex tastes and preferences found themselves obliged to conform to a single monotonous routine. There were criminal elements among them, too, which kept them continually on their guard, and at best they were so diverse in origin that any real community of feeling among them was virtually impossible. In becoming pioneers they had, as Mr. Paine says, to accept a common mold. They were obliged to abdicate their individuality, to conceal their differences and their personal pretensions under the mask of a rough good-fellowship that found expression mainly in the nervously and emotionally devastating terms of the saloon, the brothel, and the gambling hell. Mark Twain has described for us the gallant host which peopled this hectic scene, that army of erect, bright-eyed, quick-moving, strong-handed young giants, the very pick and choice of the world's glorious ones. Where are they now? he asks in roughing it. Scattered to the ends of the earth, or prematurely aged, or decrepit, or shot, or stabbed in street affrays, or dead of disappointed hopes and broken hearts, all gone, or nearly all, victims devoted upon the altar of the golden calf. We could not have a more conclusive proof of the total atrophy of human nature this old Nevada life entailed. Innumerable repressions, I say, produced the fierce intensity of that life, which burnt itself out so quickly. We can see this, indeed, in the fact that it was marked by an incessant series of eruptions. The gold-seekers had come of their own volition. They had to maintain an outward equilibrium. They were sworn, as it were, to a conspiracy of masculine silence regarding these repressions, of which, in fact, in the intensity of their mania, they were scarcely aware. Nevertheless, the human organism will not submit to such conditions without registering one protest after another. Accordingly, we find that in the mining camps the practical joke was, as Mr. Paine says, legal tender. Profanity was almost the normal language, and murder was committed at all hours of the day and night. Mark Twain tells how, in Virginia City, murders were so common that they were scarcely worth more than a line or two in the newspaper, and almost every man in the town, according to one of his old friends, had fought with pistols, either impromptu or premeditated duels. We have just noted that for Mark Twain this life was a life of chronic nervous exasperation. Can we not say now that, in a lesser degree, it was a life of chronic nervous exasperation for all the pioneers? But why? What do we mean when we speak of repressions? We mean that individuality, the whole complex of personal desires, tastes, and preferences, is inhibited from expressing itself, from registering itself. The situation of the pioneers was an impossible one. 
but victims as they were of their own thirst for gold, they could not withdraw from it, and their masculine pride prevented them even from openly complaining or criticizing it. In this respect, as I have already pointed out, their position was precisely parallel to that of soldiers in the trenches. And like the soldiers in the trenches, they were always on the verge of laughter, which philosophers generally agree in calling a relief from restraint. We are now in a position to understand why all the writers who were subjected to these conditions became humorists. The creative mind is the most sensitive mind, the most highly individualized, the most complicated in its range of desires. Consequently, in circumstances where individuality cannot register itself, it undergoes the most general and the most painful repression. The more imaginative a man was, the more he would naturally feel himself restrained and chafed by such a life as that of the gold-seekers. He, like his comrades, was under the necessity of making money, of succeeding. The same impulse had brought him there that had brought everyone else. We know how deeply Mark Twain was under this obligation, an obligation that prevented him from attempting to pursue the artistic life directly, because it was despised, and because to have done so would have required just those expressions of individuality that pioneer life rendered impossible. On the other hand, sensitive as he was, he instinctively recoiled from violence of all kinds, and was thus inhibited by his own nature from obtaining those outlets in practical jokes, impromptu duels, and murder to which his companions constantly resorted. Mr. Paine tells us that Mark Twain never cared for duels and discouraged them, and that he seldom indulged physically in practical jokes. In point of fact, he abhorred them. When grown-up people indulge in practical jokes, he wrote, forty years later in his autobiography, the fact gauges them. They have lived narrow, obscure, and ignorant lives, and at full manhood they still retain and cherish a job-lot of leftover standards and ideals that would have been discarded with their boyhood if they had then moved out into the world and a broader life. There were many practical jokers in the new territory. After all those years he had not outgrown his instinctive resentment against the assaults to which his dignity had had to submit. To Mark Twain, in short, the life of the goldfields was a life of almost infinite repression. The fact, as we have seen, that he became a universal butt sufficiently proves how large an area of individuality, as it were, had to submit to the censorship of public opinion if he was to fulfill his pledge and make good in Nevada. Here we have the psychogenesis of Mark Twain's humor, an outlet of some kind that prodigious energy of his was bound to have, and this outlet, since he had been unable to throw himself wholeheartedly into mining, had to be one which, in some way, however obliquely, expressed the artist in him. That expression, nevertheless, had also to be one which, far from outraging public opinion, would win its emphatic approval. 
Mark Twain was obliged to remain a good fellow in order to succeed, in order to satisfy his inordinate will to power, and we have seen how he acquiesced in the suppression of all those manifestations of his individuality, his natural freedom of sentiment, his love of reading, his constant desire for privacy, that struck his comrades as different or superior. His choice of a pen-name, as we have noticed, proves how urgently he felt the need of a protective coloration in this society where the writer was a despised type. Too sensitive to relieve himself by horseplay, he had what one might call a preliminary recourse in his profanity, those scorching, singeing blasts he was always directing at his companions, and that this in a measure appeased him we can see from Mr. Paine's remark that his profanity seemed the safety-valve of his high-pressure intellectual engine. When he had blown off he was always calm, gentle, forgiving, and even tender. We can best see his humor, then, precisely as Mr. Paine seems to see it in the phrase, men laughed when they could no longer swear, as the expression in short of a psychic stage one step beyond the stage where he could find himself in swearing as a harmless moral equivalent, in other words, of those acts of violence which his own sensitiveness and his fear of consequences alike prevented him from committing. By means of ferocious jokes, and most of Mark Twain's early jokes are of a ferocity that will hardly be believed by anyone who has not examined them critically, he could vent his hatred of pioneer life and all its conditions, those conditions that were thwarting his creative life. He could, in his vicarious manner, appease the artist in him, while at the same time keeping on the safe side of public opinion, the very act of transforming his aggression into jokes rendering them innocuous, and what made it a relief to him made it also popular. According to Freud, whose investigations in this field are perhaps the most enlightening we have, the pleasurable effect of humor consists in affording an economy of expenditure in feeling. It requires an infinitely smaller psychic effort to expel one's spleen in a verbal joke than in a practical joke or a murder, the common method among the pioneers, and it is infinitely safer, too, a fact that instantly explains the function of the humorist in pioneer society and the immense success of Mark Twain. By means of those jokes of his, men were killed every week, says Mr. Paine, of one little contest of wit in which he engaged, for milder things than the editors had spoken each of the other, his comrades were able, without transgressing the law and the conventions, to vent their own exasperations with the conditions of their life and all the mutual hatred and the destructive desires buried under the attitude of good fellowship that was imposed by the exigencies of their work. As for Mark Twain himself, the protective coloration that had originally enabled him to maintain his standing in pioneer society ended by giving him the position which he craved, the position of an acknowledged leader. For, as I have said, Mark Twain's early humor was of a singular ferocity. The very titles of his western sketches reveal their general character, The Dutch Nick Massacre, A New Crime, Lionizing Murderers, The Killing of Julius Caesar Localized, 
cannibalism in the cars. He is obsessed with the figure of the undertaker and his labors, and it would be a worthy task for some zealous aspirant for the doctor's degree to enumerate the occasions when Mark Twain uses the phrase, I brained him on the spot, or some equivalent. If the desire to kill and the opportunity to kill came always together, says Puddenhead Wilson, expressing Mark Twain's own frequent mood, who would escape hanging? His early humor, in short, was almost wholly aggressive. It began with a series of hoaxes, usually intended, says Mr. Paine, as a special punishment of some particular individual or paper or locality but victims were gathered wholesale in their seductive web. He was unsparing in his ridicule of the governor, the officials in general, the legislative members, and of individual citizens. He became known, in fact, as a sort of general censor, and the officials, the corrupt officials, we gather that they were all corrupt except his own painfully honest brother Orion, were frankly afraid of him, he was very far, said one of his later friends, from being one who tried in any way to make himself popular. To be sure, he was. He was very far even from trying to be a humorist. Do we not recall the early youth of that most unhumorous soul, Henrik Ibsen, who, as an apothecary's apprentice in a little provincial town, found it impossible, as he wrote afterward, to give expression to all that fermented in me except by mad riotous pranks which brought down upon me the ill-will of all the respectable citizens who could not enter into that world which i was wrestling with alone any young man with a highly developed individuality would have reacted in the same way mark twain had committed the same mad riotous pranks in his own childhood and with the same effect upon the respectable citizens of Hannibal. If he had been as conscious as Ibsen, and had not been obliged by that old pledge to his mother to make terms with his environment, his antagonism would have ultimately taken the form, not of humor, but of satire also. For it began as satire. He had the courage of the kindest of hearts, the humanest of souls. To that extent the poet was awake in him. His attacks on corrupt officials were no more vehement than his pleas on behalf of the despised Chinese, who were cuffed and maltreated and swindled by the Californians. In these attacks and these pleas alike he was venting the humane desires of the pioneers themselves. That is the secret of his daily philippics. San Francisco was weltering in corruption and the settlers instinctively loathed this condition of things almost as much as did Mark Twain himself. They could not seriously undertake to reform it, however, because this corruption was an inevitable part of a social situation that made their own adventure, their own success as gambling miners, possible. The desire to change things, to reform things, was checked in the individual by a counter-desire for unlimited material success that throve on the very moral and political disorder against which all but his acquisitive instincts rebelled. In short, had Mark Twain been permitted too long to express his indignation directly in the form of satire, 
it would have led sooner or later to a reorientation of society that would have put an end to the conditions under which the miners flourished not indeed as human beings but as seekers of wealth consequently while they admired mark twain's vehemence and felt themselves relieved through it a relief they expressed in their storms of laughter and applause they could not beyond a certain point permit it mark twain as we know had been compelled to leave nevada to escape the legal consequences of a duel he had gone to san francisco where he had immediately engaged in such a campaign of muckraking that the officials found means as mr paine says of making the writer's life there difficult and comfortless as a matter of fact only one of the several severe articles he wrote criticizing officials and institutions seems to have appeared the result being that he lost all interest in his work on the san francisco papers when on the other hand he wrote about san francisco as a correspondent for his paper in the rival community in nevada it was we are told with all the fierceness of a flaming indignation long restrained his impulse his desire we see was not that of the humorist it was that of the satirist but whether in nevada or in california he was prohibited on pain of social extinction from expressing himself directly regarding the life about him satire in short had become for him as impossible as murder he was obliged to remain a humorist in an old pamphlet about mark twain published in the eighties i discover the report of a phrenologist one professor beale of cincinnati who found the trait of secretiveness very strongly indicated in the diameter of his head just above the ears such testimony i suppose has no value but it is surely significant that this gentleman found the same trait exhibited in mark twain's slow guarded manner of speech perhaps we can understand now the famous mark twain drawl which he had inherited indeed but which people say he also cultivated perhaps we can understand also why it is that half the art of american humor consists in keeping one's face straight these humorists they don't know themselves how much they are concealing and they would be as surprised as anybody to learn that they are really social revolutionists of a sort who lack the courage to admit it mark twain once committed to the pursuit of success was obliged as i say to remain a humorist whether he would or no when he went east to carry on his journalistic career the publishers of the galaxy to which he became a regular contributor specifically asked him to conduct a humorous department and after the success of the innocents abroad his publisher bliss we find especially suggested and emphasized a humorous work that is to say a work humorously inclined we have already seen in a previous chapter that whatever was true of the pioneer society on the pacific slope was essentially true also of the rest of the american population during the gilded age that the business men of the east were in much the same case as the pioneers of the west the whole country as we know was as thirsty for humor as it was for ice-water mark twain's humor fulfilled during its generation 
a national demand as universal in america as the demand fulfilled in russia by dostoevsky in france by victor hugo in england by dickens we have at last begun to approach the secret of this interesting fact i have spoken of the homogeneity of the american people during the gilded age mr howells has already related this to the phenomenon of mark twain's humor we are doubtless he says the most thoroughly homogeneous folk that ever existed as a great nation in our phrase we have somehow all been there when our humor mentions hash we smile because we have each somehow known the cheap boarding-house or restaurant when it alludes to putting up stoves in the fall each of us feels the grime and rust of the pipes on his hands we smile because in that because we have the whole story of mark twain's success the cheap boarding-house where everyone has to pretend that he loves all his neighbors is the scene of many restraints and many irritations and as for the grime and rust of stove-pipes that is a sensation very far from pleasant sensitive men constrained by love and duty to indulge in these things have been known more than once to complain about them and even if the truth were known to cry bloody murder that was mark twain's habitual reaction as we can see from the innumerable sketches in which he wades knee-deep in the blood of chambermaids barbers lightning-rod men watchmakers and other perpetrators of the small harassments of life mark twain was more exasperated by these annoyances of everyday life than most people are because he was more sensitive but most people are exasperated by them also and as mr howells says all the american people of mark twain's time were exasperated by the same annoyances they were more civilized individually in short than the primitive environment to which they had to submit and mark twain's humor gave them face to face as they were with these annoyances the same relief it had given the miners in the west afforded them that is to say the same economy of expenditure in feeling we smile because that humor shows us that we are all in the same boat it relieves us from the strain of being unique and solitary sufferers and enables us to murder our tormentors in our imaginations alone thus absolving us from the odious necessity of shedding the blood our first impulse prompts us to shed mr howells says that we have somehow all been there a phrase which he qualifies by adding that the typical american of the last generation was the man who has risen the man who has risen is the man who has become progressively aware of civilization and the demands of the typical american of mark twain's time the demands he made upon his environment had become paripassu progressively more stringent while the environment itself remained perforce just as barbarous and corrupt and unregenerate and annoying as ever but why perforce because it was good for business it was the environment favorable for a regime of commercial exploitation wasn't the man who has risen the typical american himself a business man 
Now, we have already seen that this process of rising in the world, of succeeding in business, is attained only at the cost of an all but complete suppression of individuality. The social effect of the stimulation of the acquisitive instinct in the individual is a general leveling down, and this is universally conceded to have been characteristic of the epoch of industrial pioneering. The whole nation was practically organized, by a sort of common consent, on the plan of a vast business establishment, under a majority rule, inalterably opposed to all the inequalities of differentiation, and to a moral and aesthetic development in the individual that would have retarded or compromised the success of the business regime. We can see, therefore, that if Mark Twain's humor was universally popular, it was because it contributed to the efficiency of this business regime, because it helped to maintain the psychic equilibrium of the businessman the country over, precisely as it had at first helped to maintain the psychic equilibrium of the Western pioneer. As a matter of fact, Mark Twain has often been called the businessman's writer. In that humor of his, as in no other literature, the strong, silent man, who is the archetype of the business world, sees an aid rather than a menace to his practical efficiency. But why does he find it an aid and not a menace? Let us put the question the other way, and ask why, in other forms of literature, he finds a menace and not an aid. The acquisitive and the creative instincts are, as we know, diametrically opposed, and, as we also know, all manifestations of the creative spirit demand, require, an emotional effort, a psychic cooperation, on the part of the reader or the spectator. This accounts for the businessman's proverbial hatred of the artist, a hatred that expresses itself in a contemptuous desire to shove him off the map. Every sort of spiritual expansion, intellectual interest, emotional freedom implies a retardation of the businessman's mental machinery, a retardation of the strenuous life, the life of pure action. Consequently, the businessman shuns everything that distracts him, confuses him, stimulates him to think or to feel. Bad for business. On the other hand, he welcomes everything that simplifies his course, everything that helps him to cut short his impulses of admiration, reverence, sympathy, everything that prevents his mind from opening and responding to the complications and the implications of the spiritual and intellectual life. And this is precisely what Mark Twain's humor does. It is just as irreverent as the Boston Brahmins thought, and especially irreverent toward them, when they gave him a seat below the salt. It degrades, takes down, punctures, ridicules as pretentious and absurd, everything of a spiritual, aesthetic, and intellectual nature, the recognition of which, the participation in which, would retard the smooth and simple operation of the businessman's mind. Mark Twain, as we shall presently see, enables the businessman to laugh at art, at antiquity, at chivalry, at beauty, and return to his desk with an infinitely intensified conceit in his own worthiness and well-being. That is one aspect of his humor. In another aspect, he releases in a hundred murderous fantasies, of which I have mentioned several, 
all the spleen which the business life with its repression of individuality involves finally in his books about childhood he enables the reader to become a boy again just for a day to escape from the emotional stress of maturity to a simpler and more primitive moral plane in all these respects mark twain's humor affords that economy of expenditure in feeling which as we now perceive the business man requires as much as the pioneer glance now at a few examples of mark twain's humor let us see whether they corroborate this argument in a tramp abroad mark twain at the opera in mannheim finds himself seated directly behind a young girl how pretty she was and how sweet she was i wished she would speak but evidently she was absorbed in her own thoughts her own young girl dreams and found a dearer pleasure in silence but she was not dreaming sleepy dreams no she was awake alive alert she could not sit still a moment she was an enchanting study her gown was of a soft white silky stuff that clung to her round young figure like a fish's skin and it was rippled over with the gracefulest little fringy films of lace she had deep tender eyes with long curved lashes and she had peachy cheeks and a dimpled chin and such a dear little dewy rosebud of a mouth and she was so dove-like so pure and so gracious so sweet and bewitching for long hours i did mightily wish she would speak and at last she did the red lips parted and out leaped her thought and with such a guileless and pretty enthusiasm too auntie i just know i've got five hundred fleas on me this bit of humor is certainly characteristic of its author what is its tendency as the psychologists say mark twain has one observes all the normal emotions of a man confronted with a pretty girl he has them so strongly indeed that he cannot keep his mind on the business in hand which happens to be the opera he finds himself actually prevented as he is from expressing himself in any direct way drifting into a rhapsody about her what does he do then he suddenly dashes a pailful of ice water over this beautiful vision of his cuts it short by a turn of the mind so sharp so vulgar indeed that the vision itself evaporates in a sudden jet of acrid steam that young girl will no longer disturb the reader's thoughts she has vanished as utterly as a butterfly under a barrel of quicklime beauty is undone and trampled in the dust but the strong silent business man is enabled to return to his labors with a soul purified of all troubling emotions another example the famous esophagus hoax in the opening paragraph of a double-barreled detective story 
It was a crisp and spicy morning in early October. The lilacs and laburnums, lit with the glory fires of autumn, hung burning and flashing in the upper air. A fairy bridge provided by kind nature for the wingless wild things that have their home in the treetops and would visit together. The larch and the pomegranate flung their purple and yellow flames in brilliant broad splashes along the slanting sweep of woodland. The sensuous fragrance of innumerable deciduous flowers rose upon the swooning atmosphere. Far in the empty sky a solitary esophagus slept upon motionless wing. Everywhere brooded stillness, serenity, and the peace of God. We scarcely need Mr. Paine's assurance that the warm light and luxury of this paragraph are facetious. The careful reader will note that its various accessories are ridiculously associated, and only the most careless reader will accept the esophagus as a bird. Mark Twain's sole and willful purpose, one observes, is to disturb the contemplation of beauty, which requires an emotional effort to degrade beauty and thus divert the reader's feeling for it. To degrade beauty, to debase distinction, and thus to simplify the life of the man with an eye single to the main chance, that, one would almost say, is the general tendency of Mark Twain's humor. In almost every one of his sallies, as any one can see who examines them, he burns the house down in order to roast his pig. He destroys, that is to say, an entire complex of legitimate pretensions for the sake of puncturing a single sham. And as a rule even the shams are not shams at all. They are manifestations of just that personal, aesthetic, or moral distinction which any but a bourgeois democracy would seek in every way to cherish. Consider, for example, the value assailed in his famous speech on General Grant and his big toe. The effect of Mark Twain's humorous assault on the dignity of General Grant was to reduce him not to the human but to the common level, to puncture the reluctant reverence of the groundlings for the fact of moral elevation itself and the success of that audacious venture, its success even with General Grant, was the final proof of the universal acquiescence of a race of pioneers in a democratic regime opposed, in the name of business, to the recognition of any superior value in the individual. What made it possible was the fact that Grant himself had gone the way of all flesh and become a businessman. The supreme example of Mark Twain's humor in this kind is, however, the Connecticut Yankee. It was another of my surreptitious schemes for extinguishing knighthood by making it grotesque and absurd, says the Yankee. Sir Ozana's saddle was hung about with leather hat-boxes, and every time he overcame a wandering knight he swore him into my service and fitted him with a plug and made him wear it. Mark Twain's contemporaries, Mr. Howells among them, liked to imagine that in this fashion he was exposing shams and pretensions. 
but unhappily for this argument knighthood had been long extinct when mark twain undertook his doughty attack upon it and it had no unworthy modern equivalent to exalt the plug above the plume was a very easy conquest for our humorist it was for this reason and not as mark twain imagined from any snobbish self-sufficiency that the english public failed to be abashed by the book in this respect at least the connecticut yankee was an assault not upon a social institution but upon the principle of beauty itself an assault moreover in the very name of the shrewd pioneer businessman how easy it is now to understand the prodigious success of the innocents abroad appearing as it did precisely at the psychological moment at the close of the civil war at the opening of the epoch of industrial pioneering in the hour when the life of business had become obligatory upon every american man how easy it is to understand why it was so generally used as a guide-book by americans traveling in europe setting out only to ridicule the sentimental pretensions of the author's own pseudo-cultivated fellow-countrymen it ridiculed in fact everything of which the author's totally uncultivated fellow-countrymen were ignorant everything for which they wished just such an excuse to be ignorant where knowledge would have contributed to an individual development incompatible with success in business a knowledge that would have involved an expenditure in thought and feeling altogether too costly for the mind that was fixed upon the main chance it attacked not only the illegitimate pretensions of the human spirit but the legitimate pretensions also it expressly made the american business man as good as titian and a little better it made him feel that art and history and all the great elevated admirable painful discoveries of humankind were things not worth wasting one's emotions over oh the holy land yes but the popular biblical culture of the nineteenth century was notoriously as matthew arnold pointed out the handmaid of commercial philistinism and besides ancient palestine was hardly a rival in civilization of modern america i find your people your best people i suppose they are very nice very intelligent very pleasant only talk about europe says a traveling englishman in one of howells's novels they talk about london and about paris and about rome there seems to be quite a passion for italy but they don't seem interested in their own country i can't make it out it was true true at least of the colonial society of new england and no doubt mark twain's dash of cold water had its salutary effect the defiant americanism of the innocents abroad marked almost as definitely as whitman's leaves of grass the opening of the national consciousness of which every one hopes such great things in the future but unlike leaves of grass having served to open it it served also to postpone its fruition its whole tendency ran precisely counter to whitman's in sterilizing that is to say instead of promoting the creative impulses in the individual it buttressed the feeble confidence of our busy race in a commercial civilization so little capable of commanding the true spiritual allegiance of men 
that they could not help anxiously inquiring every traveling foreigner's opinion of it here we have the measure of its influence both for good and for evil that influence was good in so far as it helped to concentrate the american mind upon the problems and the destinies of america it was evil and it was mainly evil in so far as it contributed to a national self-complacency to the prevailing satisfaction of americans with a banker's paradise in which as long as it lasts the true destinies of america will remain unfulfilled so much for the nature and the significance of mark twain's humor i think we can understand now the prodigious practical success it brought him and are we not already in a position to see why the role of humorist was foreign to his nature why he was reluctant to adopt it why he always rebelled against it and why it arrested his own development obviously in mark twain the making of the humorist was the undoing of the artist it meant the suppression of his aesthetic desires the degradation of everything upon which the creative instinct feeds how can a man everlastingly check his natural impulses without in the end becoming the victim of his own habit i have spoken of the connecticut yankee we know how mark twain loved the tales of sir thomas mallory they were to him a lifelong passion and delight as for knightly trappings he adored them think of his love for gorgeous costumes of the pleasure he found in dressing up for charades of the affection with which he wrote the prince and the pauper when therefore in his valiant endeavor to extinguish knighthood he sends sir hosanna about the country laying violent hands on wandering knights and clapping plugheads on their heads he is doing something very agreeable indeed to the complacent american business man agreeable to the business man in himself but an absolute violation of his own spirit that is why his taste remained infantile why he continued to adore knightly trappings instead of developing to a more advanced aesthetic stage his feelings for mallory we are told was one of reverence the reverence which he felt was the complement of the irreverence with which he acted one cannot degrade the undegradable one can actually degrade only oneself and the result of perpetually taking things down is that one remains down oneself and beauty becomes more and more inaccessibly up that is why in the pretense of art mark twain always felt as he said like a barkeeper in heaven in destroying what he was constrained to consider the false pretensions of others he destroyed also the legitimate pretensions of his own soul thus his humor which had originally served him as a protective coloration against the consequences of the creative life ended by stunting and thwarting that creative life and leaving mark twain himself a scarred child he had to the end the intuition of another sort of humor will a day come asks satan in the mysterious stranger when the race will detect the funniness of these juvenilities and laugh at them and by laughing at them destroy them for your race in its poverty 
has unquestionably one really effective weapon laughter power money persuasion supplication persecution these can lift at a colossal humbug push it a little weaken it a little century by century but only laughter can blow it to rags and atoms at a blast as a race do you ever use it at all no you lack sense and the courage it was satire that he had in mind when he wrote these lines the great purifying force with which nature had endowed him but of the use of which his life had deprived him how many times he confessed that it was he who lacked the courage how many times we have seen that if he lacked the courage it was because quite literally he lacked the sense the consciousness that is to say of his own powers of his proper function satire necessitates above all a supreme degree of moral maturity a supreme sense of proportion a free individual position as for mark twain by reacting immediately to every irritating stimulus he had literally sworn and joked away the energy the indignation that a free life would have enabled him to store up the energy that would have made him not the public ventilator that he became but the regenerator he was meant to be mr paine speaks of his high-pressure intellectual engine let us follow the metaphor by saying that mark twain permitted the steam in his system to escape as fast as it was generated he permitted it to escape instead of harnessing it till the time was ripe to blow to rags and atoms that world of humbug against which he chafed all his life but he had staked everything upon the dream of happiness and humor by affording him an endless series of small assuagements enabled him to maintain that equilibrium i am tired to death all the time he wrote in eighteen ninety five out of the stress of his financial anxieties with that in mind we can appreciate the unconscious irony in mr paine's comment perhaps after all it was his comic outlook on things in general that was his chief life-saver end of chapter nine mark twain's humor read by john greenman